1: Forty, the Conquest of Mexico, Part Four. When they witnessed deeds so marvelous and of such importance to themselves, they said that no human beings would dare to do such things, and that it was the work of Teolitz, for so they call the idols which they worship, and for this reason, from that time forth, they called us Teolitz. Which, as I have already explained, is as much as to say that we were either gods or demons. Bernal Diaz de Castillo. The true account of the conquest of New Spain. The Europeans could not have wished for a more friendly welcome. Once they had dropped anchor at the place they planned to make landfall, they were greeted by the local chieftain himself, who came out to meet them. In fact, hundreds of people streamed out in canoes from the shore, The chief and his highest priests led them to land. Once there, more priests arrived, and they started conducting strange rituals. At first this unnerved the Europeans, but it was quickly obvious that they were being treated with great respect, perhaps a bit of fear even. They passed a row of skulls, and were told that human sacrifices had been made in their honour. Then a great banquet was held, and they were given as much food as they could eat. They stayed there for a month as guests of honour, never wanting for anything. But after that, it was decided that they had to move on. There was no harbour here that they could bring the ships into, and as nice as the experience was, they were not making progress towards their ultimate aim. They set sail, but very quickly they came into bad weather. A ship's mast was broken, so they returned to repair it. On arrival, the indigenous treated them coldly. Their attitude towards the Europeans seemed to have completely changed. They would provoke them in small ways to see what kind of reaction they could get. When they stole one of the small boats used to get from the ship to shore, the Europeans decided that they had to make a stand. They decided to kidnap the chief and exchange him for the boat. They were on the beach. The chief had just realised what was going on, and he had stopped cooperating. Initially, he had accepted their invitation to come aboard the ship. But now, he sat down, refused to go any further. Word had spread, and suddenly there were thousands of natives streaming towards them. The Europeans started backing off, but they were soon surrounded. In the confrontation, their leader fell. He was dead. Four others also died before the rest of the crew managed to get back to the ships. Cortez was dead, and the conquest of Mexico was over. Just kidding, of course. You probably realize now that this is not Cortes and the Spaniards I'm talking about. This is Captain Cook in Hawaii over 150 years later. Why have I just told this story then? Well, it's because this encounter has been studied in detail, and I believe it can shed some light on the conquest of Mexico. If you're an anthropologist, you're probably familiar with the name Marshall Sarlins. You might even be, if you're not, an anthropologist. He examined Captain Cook's visit to Hawaii and tried to make sense of what had happened. Why was Cook welcomed so warmly the first time, and then treated with hostility soon afterwards? For the time between Captain Cook's death and Sarlins' book, pretty much, the answer to this question was put down to irrationality. There was a view that indigenous people around the world thought in strange ways. They weren't logical, and therefore they were completely different and often considered inferior, to us Westerners. Sarlins used the story of Captain Cook to argue that the Hawaiians actually had a complex and developed belief system, and that their actions made sense within that. The change in attitude towards Cook was not mere rationality, it was highly logical when situated within their belief system. You see, the Hawaiians had a god called Lono. He was the god of harvest and fertility, and when the harvest took place, a festival was held to thank him. Cook arrived right in the middle of this festival. According to Hawaiian myth, Lono arrives after taking 23 days to circumnavigate the islands. He is then welcomed and thanked for bringing the harvest, but he is later killed by the chieftain as a symbolic establishing of man's power over nature and their right to use the harvest for their own benefit. The Hawaiians did not see their deities as supreme beings, but as characters that could interact with humanity, and with which humanity could interact. They believed that humanity had once managed to usurp some of the deity's powers for themselves. Their ancestors had usurped the power of nature, the right to use the harvest from Lono, and this story had to be reenacted using rituals every year. Cook had rounded the islands in the correct direction, and he took only a few more than the 23 days that Lono was said to have done it in. Apparently as well, part of his ships bore some kind of resemblance to Lono's iconography. So by coincidence, Cook was unwittingly playing the part of Lono perfectly, and add to this the fact that Cook and his British crew would have looked physically strange and different to the Hawaiians. In their mind, there was no doubt, Cook was Lono, manifested physically. Despite the excellent relations between the two peoples on the first trip, Cook did report small incidents of theft. The incident with the boat on his return was just the latest and biggest of these. Sarlins reckons that this was further evidence of the Hawaiian interpretation of things. According to their cosmological understanding, it was up to them to slowly test Lono and start to take the gifts he'd bought from him. They knew the story. They enacted it every year. It had to end in confrontation and the killing of Lono. By the time he returned, the festival was over, and it was time for the confrontation to begin. Sure enough, everything happened just as it did every year, culminating in Lono's death. The point Salin makes is that in their understanding of the world, the Hawaiians acted just as logically as any European. Now I should mention that Salin's interpretation is not universally accepted. He got into a very public argument about it with another anthropologist, the academic equivalent of one of those rappers' feuds where instead of exchanging insults on social media and in songs, they wrote papers using fancy theories to tell each other that they were wrong. If you want to know more about that and other critiques of Serlin's theory, you can find them easily on the internet. I won't go into them here to save time. But Serlin's account provides one of the best analyses of how, when these colonial encounters happened, the two parties are often operating with very different understandings of what is actually happening, and that these differences in understanding can often influence the course of events. Many people, including a lot of the first-hand sources we have for the conquest, believe that something similar happened in Mexico. Accounts of the conquest are riddled with claims that the native people thought that the Spaniards were gods, someone who really seems to have believed this was Moctezuma. While unlike the Hawaiian chief, he was far away in Tenochtitlan, and so was not there during the initial contact, the thought that the Spaniards were not altogether human does seem to have played on his mind. And, unlike the Hawaiians, for whom Captain Cook's arrival played in to a narrative in which they were the victors, The arrival of the Spaniards did not fit into any positive Aztec myths. The Hawaiian chief saw Captain Cook's arrival as a cause for celebration, just as it was every year. Moctezuma, however, was hearing reports of these strange creatures anchored off the eastern coast of his empire, and it was filling him with fear. The first people to reach the city from the coastline had told him of towers or small mountains floating in the sea. Then he had heard of strange bearded men who fished using alien techniques. Unnerved, he gathered together priests and shamans from all over the Empire, people who were thought to be able to see visions and interpret them. He asked them if they could shed any light on the matter. Apparently none knew anything about the strange men, or had seen them in their visions. Moctezuma responded by having them thrown in prison. The next day he asked them again if they had any predictions for the future well-being of the Empire, and they told him that a great mystery was about to strike. When he sent his man back to get more details from them, he found that they had all disappeared without a trace. Incidentally, This is the story as told to us first-hand by the Aztec. Obviously, again, it involves supernatural events, like people disappearing from prison cells without a trace. Just for the record, I want to give the Aztec side of things, and we're fortunate that they have provided us with their own accounts. So rather than stop and try and analyse each one of these events, which obviously fall outside of the Western definition of history, I will simply relate them as they are given. Anyway, in an even bigger overreaction than he gave when he had them imprisoned, Moctezuma responded by having all their family members killed. He then started preparing an official delegation to go and greet the Spaniards. Cortez had dropped anchor at a place now named San Juan Alúa. Soon enough, the locals were coming out to his ships aboard canoes. These were Moctezuma's messengers. He had given his ambassadors gifts to pass on to Cortes. He had gone all out, and they included gold and jewelry, a big mistake, as the sight of gold would only encourage the Spanish. Cortes responded by giving them fine clothing and a spectacular chair. As a side note, it was during this meeting that Cortes first realised La Malinche's usefulness. De Aguila's Maya language skills were of little use when it came to these Nahuatl-speaking Aztec. The beginning of the meeting was frustrating, as the two parties struggled to communicate. He soon noticed La Malinche talking to one of them, however, and it was established that she could speak both Nahuatl and the same Mayan dialect as Dergila. Once pleasantries had been exchanged, Cortes decided to repeat the intimidation technique he had used on the Mayan cacique in Tabasco. He fired the ship's cannons. Having no knowledge of gunpowder, this once again had the desired effect and intimidated the Aztec. According to Spanish accounts, this display helped convince the Aztec that the Spanish were not altogether human. Apparently, when Cortes asked to see Moctezuma, the Aztecs said that this was impossible. To try and change their minds, Cortes told them that a great king from across the sea to the east had sent him, and that his king would be unhappy if he returned without having spoken to the emperor personally. This apparently matched Aztec beliefs about the arrival of deities. Spanish sources also mention that the Spanish helmets were interpreted by the Aztec to closely resemble the heads of the war gods, Huitzilpochtli and Quetzalcoatl. The Aztec accounts talk of how confused the emissaries were by the cannons, horses, and even the food of the Spanish. They do not provide enough evidence to say that the Aztec thought that they were a specific god, but they do suggest that they thought that these were no ordinary humans. When they reported back, Moctezuma was filled with fear. He sent them back to the coast with more gifts, more gold and fine metalwork. This confirmed to Cortes that he was dealing with a developed and impressive civilization. It also confirmed to him, however, that they were rich and that they had much to plunder. The Aztec said that these gifts were to demonstrate Moctezuma's power but that he would not meet with them. Cortes again requested to see Moctezuma, so again the delegations went back to Tenochtitlan. They soon returned for a third meeting with more gifts, but an even firmer answer. Moctezuma would not meet them, and this time they demanded that the Spanish leave. As far as they were concerned, this was the end of the matter. They would have continued to watch the Spaniards from afar, but they intended on having no more contact with them. They disappeared, and would not come back to talk any further. Up until this point, the Spaniards had been living partially on the ships, and partially in makeshift shelters on the beach. They were hoping to be invited to the Aztec capital, so they had not seen this place as a permanent stopping place. Now, however, it was clear that no invitation was going to come. They would have to make a base, but this was not a good spot. It was exposed and surrounded by marshes. These brought mosquitoes, and these came with disease. Some of Cortez's men were already suffering from strange tropical diseases, like malaria. He sent men out to find a better location, and they soon returned, telling him but there was a place 40 miles to the north that would do the job. Cortes relocated there, and founded a settlement which he called Villa Rica de la Veracruz, the rich town of the True Cross. This was the first European town in Mexico, today it's usually just called Veracruz. Funnily enough, today's city actually sits roughly where Cortes had first landed, and deemed unsuitable for settlement. Villarica is now a small village, and soon after the conquest the settlement was moved to another small village, before eventually returning to Cortes' original landing site. The exact spot where he landed became an important fortification, and today an imposing colonial fort sits there right next to the city's docks. Cortez's foundation of Villarica was important for another reason. It was an attempt at providing some sort of legal foundation for his split from Velasquez and the colony of the Caribbean. With the foundation, he declared this a new colony, and he had himself elected governor of the new settlement. The Spanish set about building their town, constructing houses from wood, and taking stock of their immediate surroundings. One day a group of people appeared on the edge of the settlement and requested to talk with the Spanish leader. They introduced themselves as the Totonac, and they asked Cortes to visit their capital and talk further. Now we met the Totonacs briefly in the second episode on Ancient Mexico. They were probably the people who had built the city of El Tajin. Now, assuming that this is so, you may remember that their civilization seems to have collapsed roughly a couple of hundred years before the Spanish arrived. They must have had stories passed down to them of their heyday, and the ruins of their grand cities would have been visible. I imagine that this legacy would have made them a proud people, who found their current situation, as vassals of the Aztec, hard to deal with. About 70 years ago they had been conquered. Since then they had been forced to pay tribute. In the Spaniards, they saw an opportunity to change their fortunes for the better. Cortes agreed to visit their leader, but he was wary. He suspected a trap and so he prepared for the worst. He brought with him soldiers ready for battle. On arrival, however, his fears were soon allayed, and he too saw an opportunity. While he was headstrong, he was not delusional. Even though he had only had limited contact with the Aztecs so far, it must have been obvious that they were a powerful, organised empire. He would need help. If the Aztec really decided to turn on them and throw all their resources into it, he wouldn't stand much of a chance with the small army he had. At this point, who knows what Cortez's long term plan was, or if he had even formed one yet, but he would have to deal with the Aztec one way or another. Even if he wanted to conquer easier targets the Aztec would surely not tolerate their presence forever. Knowing what we know of him, however, and after the impressive gifts of gold he had been given, it's likely that his intentions were hostile to the Aztec from the beginning, even if he didn't want to show it straight away. One thing was for sure, he wasn't going to leave like they had asked, so conflict was inevitable. As the phrase goes, The enemy of my enemy is my friend, and Spanish and Totonac interests aligned. They started to build an alliance. It wasn't long before the alliance was cemented. A group of tax collectors arrived from Tenochtitlan, demanding the Totonac tribute. And, once they saw that the Totonac had been hosting the Spanish, who the Aztec had demanded all contact be ceased with, They demanded an extra group of young men and women for sacrifice. Cortes persuaded the Totonacs to rebel, and so they took the tax collector's prisoner. Cortes apparently had to spend some time persuading the Totonacs to nail their colours to this mast, but eventually they did. Cortes then had the tax collectors released and sent back to Tenochtitlan, but there was no going back, the Tottenham were now bound to the Spanish cause. It was starting to come together for Cortes. He had found a rich and powerful empire. If he could defeat them, he would have a colony that eclipsed those that the Spanish had founded so far. This may not be one of the powerful Chinese or Indian empires or the Spice Islands that the Spanish had set out to find and potentially conquer when they first sent Columbus out, but this promised to be just as good. If he could exploit the dissatisfaction of the Aztec subject peoples, he could be the man that brought it all under Spanish control. Now we already know that there was no going back for Cortes. He had proven that when he set off from Hispaniola illegally, and when he invested his own personal fortune into the trip, and when he refused to leave, when it was demanded of him by first the Maya of Tabasco, and then the Aztec themselves. Could the same be said of his men, though? Some may have been intimidated by the power of the Aztec. Some were definitely more loyal to Velázquez than to him. And although Cortes was beginning to put a plan together, did he really have enough to convince everyone that they could pull this off? Going back was not an option for him, but he needed to make sure that it was not an option for any of them. He was spurred into action by a group of Velázquez loyalists. These men hatched a plan to seize one of the ships and sail back to Cuba. The plan was discovered, and Cortes had two of the leaders killed, but this was not enough. If men are determined, or desperate enough, they will do what they feel they need to do, no matter how severe the risk of punishment. However, if their means of abandoning the expedition were taken away, then, well, they couldn't abandon the expedition. You can do everything in your power to try to convince people not to leave, through leadership, kindness or fear, but people can always change their mind or refuse to be convinced. If they can't physically go anywhere... They can't physically go anywhere. After this small rebellion, Cortes had all of the expedition's ships scuttled. They were now marooned on the shores of Veracruz, and no matter how rebellious they felt, the Spaniards' best chance of survival lay with staying unified under Cortes' leadership. So with that, and with their new Totonac allies, they set off inland. And towards the heart of the Aztec Empire. You've been listening to the Latin American History Podcast, written and recorded by Max Sargent. For more information, visit the website www.maxsargent.com/slash The History of Latin America. And that's spelled M-A-X-S-E-R-J-E-A-N-T. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to get in contact at History of Latin America podcast at gmail.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching for the Latin American History Podcast. The Twitter handle is at History and if you've liked the show you can help out by leaving a review on iTunes. Alternatively, if you visit the website you'll see that each episode is accompanied by relevant photos. Most of these are my own, taken during my time in Latin America. All these photos and more are available to purchase as prints at my Etsy shop. You can find this at www.etsy.com slash MaxSgtPhoto. That's spelt www.etsy.com slash photo. Thanks for listening.